You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'm an only child. Uh, grew up uh, 10 years in New York, 10 years in Indiana, and now my adult 17 years here with the kiddos here in South Carolina. And so I'm pretty much a spoiled brat. I kind of got all the attention. My mom thought I was great. I had a little drawing table in our apartment in Albany, New York that just had all my pictures hung up on the wall just because I was the best and I couldn't do any wrong. And mama love, mama love son, mama love Ollie. It's kind of how I grew up. I had a couple of, um, you know, not blood, but friendship orbits that would, you know, become kind of like siblings or brothers and sisters. I had a, uh, uh, I have a half-brother named Dominic who lives uh, in North Carolina currently, but he's 10 years younger. You have any kids that are 10 years younger? It's kind of like not even fair. It's not that. That 18-month, two-year that really just makes the thing explode doesn't happen quite at 10 years. So I don't know if I can quite emulate or empathize with where you know, some of you guys are at. Um, I had a cousin named Kurt that lived down the street. And so uh, we would get fed up with each other, get, get enough of each other. We would get into like basically a little and fist fight. And by a fist fight, just, he would noogie me and I would just cry and go home. You know, that was kind of how, how that would go. You know, we'd kind of run into each other's sandbox, and then we'd move out of the way pretty quickly. And then, you know, I've had other cousins, you know, in China and, and in Hong Kong. And, and, uh, and sometimes, you know, I've, I've uh, commented to you guys before, it, it'll feel like in, 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 a, in a multicultural family, being a, a half Chinese, half white person, I can sometimes feel uh, so white that I'm not quite Chinese enough when I'm in Hong Kong, and so Chinese that I'm not quite white enough when I'm in South Carolina. And so there it is. I'm kind of the the mixed breed there, but, um, but wondering, you know, about some of my cousins that live over there, I wonder what it would be like if I was really Chinese, if I was fully Chinese, if I would be fully embraced into that culture. And so no matter who you are and how many kids and siblings you have, you always kind of end up having rivalry over people that uh, have common seats, common sandboxes of life that, that you're competing for. I guess if there's one mantra or motto that goes along with sibling rivalry is just simply this, it's not fair. That's not fair. Like, isn't that the pre, pretty much the, the 3 a.m., the beginning and the end of sibling rivalry? That's not fair. So um, my dad had seven basically Chinese brothers, and my mom had seven blondie, just German-Irish kids in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, one time we inherited this uh, old dresser that got handed down with the seven little sisters from one, I'm sure, one sister to the next. All, everything's handed down in a Catholic family with seven kids. And uh, I remember getting this little drawer from my house and pulling open the second one, and it just said, she thinks she's so big. She thinks she's so big. And if there's, man, anything in the, in the engine, in the heart, I think, of what it means to grow up in seven, in seven, seven sisters all competing for the same dad, the same attention, the same school, the same grades, it's just not fair, and she thinks that she's so big. Anybody can prophesy that today, right, out of their own experience? Um, there's a limited amount of attention. There's only so much love that can go around. There's only one person that can be the smartest or the best-looking or the one person that can be the strongest or the most athletic. And once that seat's taken, it's like Ricky Bobby. If you're not first, you're last, right? And so, and so it's not fair. It's not fair that some kids get more attention. It's not fair that some kids get more grace and mercy. It's not fair that some kids get more help. And it's just not fair. And as a parent, some of you guys that have crossed the threshold into the parent zone, you know that it doesn't just not feel fair. It's not fair. Family's not fair, and we're learning that on both ends of that spectrum because if a kid is a prodigal son, I'm not going in that moment and season of prodigalness to spend as much time worrying about the first kid, unfortunately, as the second kid because I'm geared as a father to leave the 99 to go search for the one because it's not fair. If there's a kid that 
pops out and they're ready to go to Harvard and they can quote Shakespeare from the time that they're three and then there's a kid that's illiterate and dyslexic, like my, my resources are divided because the kids are different and it's not fair. And the whole point of family is you kind of live family and walk out family and then lead families is that the creation of family itself was not ever meant to be fair because it's meant to be blessed. And the, and, the, and the diversity that comes into family is not made to just become an evil level playing field where everybody is the same. It's actually so that the stronger people within a family would learn to see their strength as something to be given. And the weaker parts of the family, the, the younger parts of the family, to walk and learn, to not make everything an even playing field where everybody makes the same amount of money and everybody has the same gifts and everybody has the same problems and everybody has the same resources. No, but rather that the weaker, for example, would learn to have a sense of faith and trust the process to the ones that are stronger and receive. And this is the vision for family, not for fairness, but for blessing. And so, as we find out, you know, through the tens of years and twenties of years and thirties of years, that the journey of family is not really a journey towards fairness, but it's a journey towards forgiveness and blessing. Like after you, you know, turn 16, you move out of competing with each other overtly, and by 20 or 30, you kind of learn how to play nice. Like there's some level of cooperation, like I know that I think that I'm better than you, but I'm just not going to say it out loud, you know? <laughs> like that, that, that competition turns into a level of humility and cooperation. But even cooperation next to competition isn't the full goal. The fullest goal of family is communion. It's that I figure out that the two-point grade average that I have better than you is not that big of a deal in the scheme of things. That your dyslexia and my trip to Harvard actually is nothing compared to the commonality of brotherhood and sisterhood that I have with you, and that ultimately all of us are struggling. All of us have the odds stacked against us, and all of us have needs for this blessing that we're trying to find in family, and therefore you and me are not enemies, but we're brothers and sisters, and blesses the family that walks that path and figures that out. That it's not about being better or being burdened or being bitter, but it's about being blessed. The journey of finding blessing in family. So as we turn the corner into Romans chapter 9, um, this whole book is about, is about illustrating and preaching about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And the gospel, if there's one tagline that Paul's trying to get across to that church and to this church, is that the gospel uh, is not talk, but it's power. And therefore, it is not received by works or effort, but by faith. From beginning to end, from Abraham to us, that the gospel has always been mobilized by faith, by trusting that I'm not the one that saves myself, I'm not the one that changes myself, and I'm not the one that unifies within the church. It's him. It's his power that he's the one that's been driving the bus the whole time. And so, Romans chapter 9 begins to take its third and final turn, whereas Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 4 is all about salvation by faith alone, and Romans chapter 5 through Romans chapter 8 is all about sanctification or change through faith alone, then this last portion, 9 all the way through 16, is that the full gospel is not just that a person is saved or that a person is, is changed, but the full gospel is that the church is unified that it finds communion. In other words, that the gospel would not count itself as success unless the believer becomes part of a family. 
that if the gospel is just a believer gets to heaven but doesn't find family, then that would not be counted as success in the eyes of the gospel because the gospel is not just to save and it's not just to change, but the, the gospel is to unify us in family. And so the logic is that we're going to read through in the next couple of weeks until the end of the summer and the end of this book is that the same way that a believer would access heaven through Jesus into heaven, the same way, the same vehicle that a believer would access heaven is the same actual vehicle that we would access into family, faith. Because here's the logic. If I believe that I'm justified through faith alone, not by my own doing or not by my natural birth order, not by my works, if I can access heaven only because of faith, because Jesus has, in his sacrifice, seen me and treated me and made me like him, He is my righteousness. If that is true of me and I have a faith vertically for how I get to heaven, then how can I have any kind of a different faith towards you is the question. If I expect that the access point of me and and, and, uh, uh, unqualified, a disqualified sinner to access the presence of God and live in eternity with him, then how can I deny you access to my table of fellowship by any other means than faith? There's no such thing as a vertical faith that believes that I can access God through one channel and means and then believe that there's some other horizontal access point that believes you need to jump some other, some other hurdle to get to my table. And so just as justification means being seen and treated and becoming like Christ, so it is that I am called within my discipleship to Christ to see you and treat you and lead you as though you were like Jesus. If that's the way that Jesus sees me, then that is an accountability system, the way that I necessarily must be seeing you. And so this is the pastoral logic. There is no such thing as, as access to heaven through faith without family through faith. And so the gospel, the gospel is not, uh, you know, in unity is not accessed by tolerance, by, by, by men's retreats and bonding. It's not, it's not access. Unity is not accessed by us getting our political agendas co-aligned. Uh, the, the unity that is, that, is, uh, that is happening, let's say, in a church at any given time is not because you and me are nice enough to each other and create some kind of contract of goodwill. The only access point that we can have to the gospel, and therefore the only access point we can have towards unity, is just through this one thing, through faith. It's through faith. And so chapter 9, he's going he's gonna to get at this in a very interesting way. It's a compelling way, but it's strange nonetheless. And so the way that he's going to preach this to this Roman church of Jews and Gentiles who are viciously divided over their, over their faith, is through the, the doctrine of sovereignty. And you guys have read the book of Romans and probably been praying for me as we approach Romans chapter 9, because this is about uh, the, the, one of the more controversial you know, passages that you'll read in, in the book. Um, I don't see it as super controversial. I, I read it in, in, to me, what seems like a very clear way in the line of thought, right? But this, this aspect of sovereignty, oftentimes within theological debates, becomes about this whole question of it, are, are people born uh, with the inability to go to heaven? Are some people born already prepared uh, for salvation, and some people born that they cannot repent, and they're born, therefore, to destruction, to hell, okay? And I don't personally read it that way, and I don't see it that way, and I'm going to read this through and do my best to kind of prove that, but I'm not here to prove anything but to, to pastorally preach today. Um, but to me, Romans chapter 9 the, 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 the doctrine of sovereignty is not so much, if you read it in the line of thought that it's inherited in the Bible, 9 after 8 and then before 10, is it's less about God's choosing of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's more about uh, God's sovereignty to choose how he will save 
the people um, into heaven or into destruction. That is, it is his sovereign will to save people by grace alone, through faith alone. And if anybody argues about that, then he makes that argument, who are you, God, to, or who are you to speak to God, the maker? Uh, can the clay say to the potter, for example, why did you make me like this, okay? And so, ultimately, if you guys ever uh, read uh, American history before, you know, in the, in the, um, in the Constitution, um, there, there's something called imminent domain. Do you know what imminent domain is? Imminent domain means you don't, might not know this, but if the government sees it fit and pays you enough money for some of your private property, they can actually make your private home or car right now into public use if they want to. And this is, I think, what the key is for gospel sovereignty here or for God's sovereignty within our lives is not so much that he's micromanaging and engineering our spiritual destinies, but more so that he is orchestrating a grand plan that is for none of us to decide what goes on that whiteboard, and he's implementing imminent domain over your life, which means that he can do what he wants, with whom he wants, wherever he wants to, whenever he wants to, and there's nobody that can talk back to him. He has imminent domain over your life. And so this is, this is contingent on the gospel unity theme because here's the deal. If imminent domain exists for God and he can make anything private in our lives into public space uh, just because it's his sovereign will, right? Here's what that necessarily means. None of this is mine. My house is not really my house. It's a rude awakening because we grow up in life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And that is a popular sovereignty model that does not exist in the kingdom of heaven that tells me, well, that's my private property. If you get up more property, I might shoot you. But, you know, like this kind, of, this kind of popular sovereignty that does not exist in the kingdom of heaven. There is kingdom sovereignty in the kingdom of heaven, and therefore your house is not your house. Your money is not your money. That's not your money. Your gifts are not your gifts. Your opinions are not your opinions. Your thoughts are actually not your thoughts. You actually don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. And so the argument that you see at the very end of it is uh, this tension of people maybe fighting back on what Paul is saying. He, he kind of gives them a Job moment to put them in their place. It's not so much, hey, deal with it. God can send people to hell or heaven or wherever he wants to. He's saying, no, deal with it. God can use whoever he wants to, however he wants to, whenever he wants to, in the ways that he wants to do it because he's God and you're not. And that's a really good thing. And so gospel unity lives on the other side uh, of faith, the same way as gospel salvation is on the other side of faith for each of us that would believe, so it is the gospel unity. How could I see or treat you uh, by any other measuring stick um, than faith if that's the only measuring stick that God is measuring against me? And so gospel unity does not live on the other side of tolerance campaigns. It does not live on the other side of great academic debate. It does not live on the other side of, of rallies and uh, retreats and time spent. It lives on the other side of the gospel. We will find nothing but unity in the gospel uh, and nothing other than unity in the gospel. And that is what Paul is going to uh, embark on for the next couple of chapters. So um, let me read this uh, passage that we went over in a moment, uh, a moment ago and, uh, and begin to kind of work through it. I speak the truth, he says. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. That's a strong statement. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, I would rather trade my status of non-condemnation in the place of what he is inferring, at least for the time being, is Jewish condemnation. I would rather trade places with them to take their condemnation so that they would not have condemnation. This is how strong it is that Paul has anguish, not apathy, in his heart against, for his Jewish brothers. For the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. 
Theirs is the adoption, the sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs uh, uh, from trace, the human ancestry, who God is over and forever over and praised. Amen. And so what has happened is, for the large chunk of salvific history throughout Israel, um, the Jews, as he's saying, were the ones with the promise and the covenant and the laws and the access to God. And as the gospel began to take place into the globe, as you could imagine, then the majority party, which used to be the people that were the people of God, has now become the minority party. Like imagine if, for example, you guys uh, moved out of town, you went back to Tennessee, you went back to California, and you didn't come back to City Lights for five years. That's exactly what happened, right, to the Jews. So there's this Emperor Claudius, and at that point, um, the Jews were uh, kicked out, they were expelled out of Rome, they were not allowed uh, to be there anymore based on religious intolerance. And after five years, they were allowed back in. Well, the church that they came back into was very different from the church that they left. And, and when, when they had left, they were, they were the majority party. And not only that, not only that, now the majority party, which are the Gentiles, are now the leaders. And so they're not just the minority, they're also the outsiders. They used to be the one that called the shots, and they used to be the one that made decisions, and they used to be the one where the identity and the texture of the community would look and smell and think like them, but no longer. They went from majority to minority. They went from insider to outsider. What if you came back and and the landscape of City Lights was different. How would you respond? If the leaders were different and they didn't look like you, if they came from a different nationality, what, if, what would happen if they spoke a different language? What if, what if City Lights became a Spanish church? How would you respond to that? Some of you guys would think that was awesome. Some of you guys would be a little bit annoyed because we like our sandbox the way that it is. We like to be the leaders. We like to have things look like us. We like to be around people that are like us. We don't want to be the minority. We want to be the majority. We want to be the outsiders. We want to be the insiders. And so here is this wrestling tension I think we could have empathy with. And so it turns out that there's a huge plot twist, because in the Jews' mind, this is what they thought, that a faithful God had a bunch of unfaithful people and became faithful to one group of people to bless the many, which is, which is actually true. That was the Jewish covenant, the idea that out of all the people, God selected one nation to be a blessing, to be blessed so that they could be a blessing to the others. But here's the plot twist. Here's the plot twist, because they thought that God's covenantal promise was to to not show covenantal faithfulness to one group, group B, so that he could show covenantal faithfulness to this other group, group A, and group A would be faithful. But here's what we found out time after time, if you've ever read the Old Testament, that in fact it wasn't just God's unfaithfulness to an unfaithful group and God's faithfulness to a faithful group. It was God's faithfulness to two unfaithful groups. It was, it was a case study in showing here's what happens to people when I'm not faithful to them, and here's what happens to them when I am and lo and behold, they both come out exactly the same, right? So this is, the, this is the plot irony twist here, is that it was to show their unfaithfulness. And they've become the minority, they've become the outsider, now they're looking in for a short time, and he's going to get to the end of this the chapter. And so in order to, to speak and appeal to unity within the church between the Jews and the Gentiles, minorities, majorities, and all these kind of things, he doesn't appeal to his opinions, right? He talks scripture to them. So this is how he does it. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed, says Paul. This was his plan all along. I know you're just catching up. It's a rude awakening, and I feel for you, man. But this is the plan all along. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Huh? Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What he's saying is that there is actually two groups of people within the Israel camp. There is physical Israel, and there's spiritual Israel. There's actually a an Israel within an Israel, because the true Israel was not based on blood. It was always based on faith. And there's a conflation that happened within the people of God to think 
that their salvation was based on heredity and law-keeping and family lines, when really it was always meant to be based on faith lines, which is why Ruth was in and Boaz is in, and which is why, why, why there, was, there was a crossover of not just blood but faith, because the determining factor was always faith, not blood. Verse 7, nor because uh, are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise. That's, that's what salvation looks like. That's what gospel looked like in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was the trusting in the promise, righteousness by faith, who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Then he gives a second case study, verse 10. First he talks about Abraham, then his son Isaac, and now the third generation, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by the father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older is going to serve the younger. Just as it's written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What then can we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on those who have mercy and compassion on those who have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human effort or desire, but on God's mercy. So we all went all back to, Abraham, to, to Romans 4, and he already, he already told us. He, 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 he interpreted, he hermeneutically discussed what the Abraham story is about. He was uncircumcised, he was unrighteous, he was unfruitful, and he was included in the promise by faith and faith alone, so that we would know that it was by faith. But in case that maybe you thought that he was already doing some good things beforehand, we're going to go ahead and create this other case study of his kids. And we're going to show how Abraham made sense in our mind when he went and slept with somebody that could have babies rather than somebody who couldn't have babies to have a line. He was always promised to have a, a, a generations upon generations and have a son that would have a son and have a son. And he, and he promised that it would come through his barren wife, Sarah, but but Abraham didn't trust it, so he went off and had this other son. And he's saying, and, and, and so he's reminding us here of the Old Testament, not quoting his opinions, but quoting the Scripture. Look, this is how he's always been doing it, that man had this idea of his own works and his own strength and his own control, and it never worked out that way. Even in the second generation, it wasn't based on works. It was always based on faith. And here's how you know, because he caused a barren woman to have the baby, even when you had a perfectly uh, fruitful slave girl named Hagar that he had the baby through in the first place, God didn't choose that, that line. He chose this line. He chose the line of promise. Now, in case that we just thought, well, maybe that's because, you know, one was birthed in sin and one was birthed in righteousness, and we think that maybe that's the way that we can kind of organize this whole thing on works. Then he goes into the twins. He's like, look, think about the next kid. The third generation, the lady got pregnant. She had two twins, and it had nothing to do with Abraham's choices. It was simply God's election. That's what he's trying to say. Now, notice, this is not about individual salvation for how individual people get saved. This is about an individual Jewish line deciding how the line of the Messiah would build itself out. And the point is not so much, oh man, I can't believe that God has plans for us in the womb. The point is, is that when God chooses somebody, he almost never chooses the older and he always chooses the younger because man always wants to build things on strength and God wants to bring things on faith. So you can look at the line. I mean, we could go down the line past what the examples he gives, right? But look at this. I mean, it's not sometimes, it's always. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Judah and Joseph. But then beyond that, go past this. The line was always based on the second born. It was always based on where the inheritance wasn't supposed to go. It was always based on the runt. It was always based on the weaker. It was always based on the last. It was always based on the least. Seth was the replacement brother, man. 
He wasn't the first one. He was a contingency baby. Noah's out there. He didn't have any, he, he, he had to, he, all he had was the dry land to build a boat with. He's, he's bringing it, the success of the line through building a boat in a desert. How does, God, how does God save people? Through weakness, through things that don't make sense to human eyes. This is not about, can God raise somebody up to send them to hell? That's not what this is about. This is about God continually chooses people and much to the Israelites' behest, not the people we often think or want to be chosen. Abram, you're going to have a million children, and your wife has menopause, cannot have babies. This is not good, right? Moses, you can't speak. How about you become a prophet? How about that? You stutter? How about prophesy to the biggest empire in the world? Joshua, you're 16. You got acne all over your face. You're going to go out and attack the Taliban. Like, you're just going to go on a war with the Philistines, and I'm just going to win. David, you're just out there singing songs and just a hippie in the field and just, just go kill a giant. Just here's the rocks and go kill them. You're the youngest, you're the runt, and you're going to be king. Mary, here's a problem. You're supposed to have the Messiah, but you're a virgin. You haven't done the actual physical work necessary to conceive the promise that God has given, not because this is an accident, because this is a policy. This is a principle that the kingdom of heaven has always been rolling out. And this is the argument that he's making all the way down to the poor disciples that Jesus said to us, right, and to them, blessed are the poor in spirit, because man, 10 out of 10 times, will always choose sexy, cool, and controlled, and strong, and God will choose the opposite to prove that it's his strength and not ours, right? When I was in youth group, you know, like, there's a bunch of books that came out in the early 2000s, like, we need to plant our churches like Starbucks, we need to have a third-place environment, build all this culture. Look how Starbucks does it. Starbucks knows how to greet people and remember people's names. Starbucks is efficient. It's clean. It's organized. There's an org chart. There's a brand, man. We should have churches that look like Starbucks. Have you ever seen this before? Apple. Oh, my gosh. Apple. The guy comes up. He's got a cool black T-shirt with a cool black iPad, and he tells you where to go, and it's all efficient. Everything always works. Chick-fil-A. Oh, my goodness. Chick-fil-A is a Christian company. They take off on Sundays. We should have a drive through line that goes around two times. So it'll be super slick and super clean, and everything's nice, and everything's clean. You know what people choose every time when they get the chance? Cool, strong, controlled, and clean. You know what they never choose? Uncool, unstrong, uncontrolled, and uncomfortable. You know where God always works? The second one. <laughs> this is the message, right? How do, we, how do we hermeneutically get this thing from the author to the audience to us effectively? We're not Jewish. We don't have a ready, but I'll tell you what we do love. We love strength, and we hate weakness, and the gospel is an equal opportunity offender, and he's testing you right now about what you actually think is going to save you, your strength or your weakness. Because to be cool, you got to curate. you got to make sure that my colors are all right. And I don't want to put anything on my Instagram that messes with my personal brand. And so I'm going to make sure that all the messaging is really clear. I'm going to make sure, right, that, that the whole plan is all worked out. And remember, I'll tell you, in youth group, you would have a Google Doc, and it would have all the plans about how you're going to remember people's names and the next steps and the cards and how you're going to handle everything. You know where testimonies, testimonies that came out of those Wednesday nights happened? They never happened from that list. They always happened from some kid that decided to be led by the Lord and drive a kid home and invite somebody into family, and none of that could ever fit in a Google document because God loves to work through weakness and not strength. And this is the lesson. This is the take-home is that we always choose comfortable. We always choose what's easy and graspable and something that is winnable for me because I love to win and I hate to lose. But everything in that gospel and everything in the line and the story from the Old Testament and the New Testament is never about 
comfort, right? And it's always about waiting and trusting. It's waiting for a promise for 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years, deciding to live and make decisions that only make sense if God is real. And that, at the end of the day, is faith. It's not about being more Republican, being more Democrat, or being more neat, or being more planned, or being more spontaneous. It's about living a life that trusts in the unseen more than the seen because we have a confidence in what we hope for and believe in something that is promised to us as though it's materially real. And this is the stumbling block, Jew, Gentile, American, Chinese, or any otherwise, is that man chooses strength, but God chooses weakness. So uh, he moves on, and he, and he gets into an even rougher sermon illustration for these poor Jews. Verse 17, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the, the earth. This is where the DJ's like, like, the bus just stops. Because we're, we're flowing with him for a little while. Like, I get it. Okay, so you're saying I'm kind of like Isaac, I'm kind of like Jacob, I'm kind of like, like Abraham. Like, I'm used to sermons that put me in the shoes of the forefathers. But you watched his sermon illustration, he just took you out of the shoes of the forefathers and put him into the King Pharaoh, evil Nebuchadnezzar dude, who's a heathen and a tax collector and a Gentile, and says, hey man, you're not just Abraham, you're Pharaoh. This is what he's just said to these guys. Big wake-up call. Verse 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens those he wants to harden. Now, a couple thoughts and words as we get into this part about the hardening of the heart. Here are 10 plagues that you might remember from the Exodus story that you read in Sunday school. And I want you to notice something. Because it says that God raises up Pharaoh for such a place as this, that God would harden his heart, that he would reveal his name, not only to the Israelites, but to the generations. That was his intent, okay? But if you look at this list, there's two things I want you to understand about the hardening of hearts, the hardening of either Pharaoh's heart or through the gospel, what Paul is trying to preach to these Jewish people, or maybe to us, about what happens to our heart becoming hard, is two things. Number one, the hardening of the heart is never unfair and unjust, Pharaoh was not out there leading a, leading a justice and mercy mission out there in Egypt. He was identified because he was already going the direction he wanted to go. And if you look at these 10 words here, what is it? Uh, the first plague, Pharaoh's heart just becomes hard. The second plague, it does say that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. The third plague, again, is neutral. It says he, his heart was hard. Then four goes back and says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. So who... If you look at the, the active, uh, the active um, actor within the first four plagues, who is the one that's actually hardening Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh. It's not God. This is not an unjust thing. This is, this is God, as we talked about in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 1, allowing Pharaoh to go the direction he was already going. He simply invites him over to the edge of the cliff and lets him run off of it, right? This is, this is the idea. It's not unjust. It's not unfair. The livestock die, and Pharaoh's heart was hard. Neither of them are the actors. Uh, number six, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. So now by the sixth time, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. But not enough that Pharaoh doesn't sometimes relent and allow the people to go for different points of, of, of the story to pull them back again. And so Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So it's not unjust. And here's the other thing. It's not eternal. It's not permanent. He is hardening Pharaoh's heart and allowing him to make his own decisions all the way around. It's not automated. God hardens Pharaoh's heart in, in, in the eighth plague. God hardens Pharaoh's heart in the ninth plague. And then he, he hardens Pharaoh's heart in the tenth plague. And so you can see the two things about the hardening of heart is not that it's uh, unfair and not that it's irreversible. And so this is really where we could head in Romans chapter 11 to make sure that we get an apt understanding of what's going on is there's a temporary hardening. 
He's speaking to the Jews. He's comparing them to Abraham and Isaac, but also to Pharaoh and saying, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that your heart's not hard. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that your heart isn't becoming hard, doesn't mean that God isn't testing you right now. Listen to what he says in, in, in Romans chapter 11. Again, I ask, did, this, did they stumble? This is the Jews. Did the Jews stumble beyond recovery? Meaning, is somebody's heart so hard that it can't be irreversible while they're here on earth? And look what he says, not at all. It is not a permanent hardening. It is a temporary hardening for his good purposes to turn. Every moment of judgment is also a moment of salvation that you would turn and learn from what's happening so you repent. Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make the Jews envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much more greater his riches that will bring full inclusion. And so if I could think of an illustration that makes me think about what this whole hardening of heart thing is. You know with your parents or with your kids, you could ask somebody a question uh, when they're in a certain mood and you know they're going to tell you no. Like if you, if, you, if you thought about this, like if your parents or your kids and you, and you really wanted to get the answer no, you would know probably a better time or place or way to explain it to them that they would be more likely to say no. How many of you guys know how to do that, right? So here's my, little, here's my little test. You guys might think I'm mean about this. So serving youth ministry. Everybody wants to serve with high schoolers. High schoolers are cool. High schoolers will listen to you. High schoolers don't have ADD. They're not running around, you know, making fart noises. Like high schoolers don't sink, right? And so whenever you have a youth person, raise their hand, hey, I want to volunteer for youth, and you ask them, do you want to go to middle school or high school, guess what they always say? High school. Of course. I'm called the high schoolers. Okay. So <laughs> nobody's called the middle schoolers all of a sudden. I guess God doesn't care about middle schoolers, right? So here's what you do if you ever become a youth pastor. You make every person that comes in to youth ministry to serve in middle school. You know why? Because character is more important than cool. And you'll sacrifice all those people. If their heart is not ready to serve a middle school, then their heart is not ready to serve a high school. And you don't tell them that fact because it reveals the side of their heart that they don't want to see. And so they have a decision, a testing point to soften their heart or harden their heart. And I would rather you meet that lesson early on than go into the situation hurting themselves, hurting others, and making it about the youth group experience that I miss because I want to be cool and be in with the cool kids even though they're five years younger than me now circumvents that process that makes you sit on the sidelines and think, why do I want to serve in the first place? You get what I'm saying? So every hardening is a test, and it's not desiring that people would be pushed away, but they would return under the right context of what repentance would look like. And I think this is what he's doing to Pharaoh, and this is what he's doing to you and I. So what is the test? What's the test? This is the perennial test all throughout Romans. Are you here by works, or are you here by faith? What do you do to somebody that is less tenured than you in the faith, what, what do you do when somebody has been a Christian for less time than you and is putting leadership over you? How do you respond to that? Because it's not just about my faith vertically, it's also about my faith horizontally. Do I believe that people are, are running within the church based on their own credentials and what we can get done around here or based on what God says about them? Maybe that person has them be a Christian for three years and is more fruitful in ministry than you in 30 years. What do you do about that? That's the test. The test is, what happens if a person that you're called to to walk alongside in love is maturing slower than you want them to? We've just entered a test. Do you believe that people are improved based on your uh, social uh, engineering and your carrots and sticks that you put in front of people, or do we actually believe that people are saved by faith and power alone? And that tests you based on how long the person that you're walking with is taking to mature into the stature of Christ. What happens if you're doing life and you're raising a family, and it's super hard, and the thing that that person, right, would have had 
to learn in two weeks and their family just kind of changes and rearranges, you're stuck here for 20 years. What do you do about that? This, I think, is where the rubber hits the road, where our theology actually hits our practice because what we believe about our access to heaven is also what we believe about our access to family and how, we, and how this thing moves in the first place. And so basically he says to us a really hard statement, but it's a statement we want to hear or need to hear, that he says to Job, hey, are you God? Is this your church? Do these people belong to you? Do we owe you something? Are you entitled to something because you've been here longer, because you're richer, because you look good, because you can, you can talk good? Is that like, this is a good moment for us. Are you God? That's the test of Pharaoh and that's the test to us. Is it your stuff? Well, how come that person, you know, I give so much money and this time to the church and this person doesn't get everything and they get all the attention, blah, 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 blah. Are you God? Does he have imminent domain over your stuff or not? Are you here because you earned it? This is the, one of the crazy parables, right, that he, he tells to the Pharisees at one point. He says, hey, listen, everybody got up and they got this job and they're really happy because they got one denarius. And the first group, you know, they worked and they started at, at sunup, right in the beginning of the morning. And then the second group, you know, they started working at nine, three hours later. And then the third group, remember, they got picked up at 12, and they only worked for one hour. And the boss calls them all home, and he pays them all. And guess what he pays them? The same amount. And he says, are you calling me ungenerous or cruel because I paid the same amount? I promised you one denarius, and I gave you one, one denarius. In other words, if, if I'm promising you heaven by faith, and you access heaven by faith, why are you speaking to me as though you're upset about how I did it? I can choose who I want to choose, how I want to choose it, through whom I want to do it, whenever I want to do it, because I'm God and you're not. And that's really good news. Because I'm sovereign. And because I have a plan and I'm working this thing out. And so he closes up. He says, uh, verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed to the one who formed it say, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes, and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? As it says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. Isaiah said it. All the prophets were talking about this from the beginning until the end. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand on the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord God Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. And here's where it all lands. This is the test. This is what he's been saying all along. This is what he's saying. Again, I don't think this passage, if you read it in its context, is he's not pulling the car over and having some esoteric conversation about at what points are people saved and when does regeneration take place. I think he's making an argument all the way along of people's propensity and protest against God saving who he wants, how he wants to do it, namely through faith and not through works. Who are we to argue about that? If he promises one Daenerys and he gave us one Daenerys, how is God unjust with that? He told us from faith, not by works. So this is what he says. What then shall we say? This is the test, really, of Pharaoh and to Israelite and Israel and to me and you, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is, that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way to righteousness, that's it. That's how you fail it. 
pursuing the law as a way to righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled. That's how a heart is hard. It stumbles over the gospel. They want something cooler and sexier and cleaner and more in control and more fair to what I think is fair, and then you stumble it. And you lose the very thing. You lose the blessing over fairness. He wanted to give you blessing, but you wanted fairness instead, and so he gave it to you, and you missed the blessing. Because fair is disconnection from God and unrighteousness, to be honest. But if we were to choose the blessing instead of fairness because they pursued it not by faith, they stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him, that's the one who receives the blessing. The one who believes in him, the one that walks by faith, the one that trusts the promise rather than my own control, that's the one who's never going to get put to shame. So it's like at the end of a meal, everybody's having a great time, drinking it up, eating it up, ordering the caviar until that bill comes out. Anybody here have some friends or are some people that don't think about the bill until the bill comes out? Big old party comes through, and the bill comes out, and it's 10 times what anybody can afford. That's what the gospel is. It's a group of people that come to the meal, and they think that they're king, and they think that they're God, and they eat like they're kings, and they eat like they're gods, and then the bill comes. And not only is the bill 10 times more than I can afford, but it's 10 times for what everybody else in this place could afford. And then... A family member, one that is, in this case, like Jesus, fully God, but also fully man, one that has a wallet, one that has money, one that actually lived with flesh and blood and bones, actually walks into the restaurant and says, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for the family. I'll pay for the bill that nobody else can afford. It only would take one. It would only take one faithful representative. God has been faithful the entire time. The, the Gentiles have not been faithful the entire time. The Jews have not been faithful in the case study the entire time. The only one that has ever been faithful is Jesus. Jesus has been faithful to the covenant that both of these people couldn't fulfill. And so Jesus came out of heaven and became a man like you and I to be the Gentile that the Gentiles never were and to be the Jew that the Jews never were so that we could have a covenant to live in his righteousness and not in our own. And so what is the culture that's created? What is the necessary culture that comes from a family that ate up and drank up 10 times more than all of their collective paychecks could afford that a, that a representative comes and pays the bill for them other than humility and faith? I didn't pay for this meal. I didn't make this meal. I don't deserve this meal. I don't have insight into what happened on the plate or why the plate came this way. I'm here because somebody paid a debt that I couldn't pay. And so the entitlement's checked at the door, boasting is checked at the door, favoritism is checked at the door, elitism, entitlement is checked at the door, privilege is checked at the door. I own nothing and have nothing because the one that I owe to paid everything that I owe, and so therefore I owe him my life as a living sacrifice. And so ultimately then, the language of the way that we access heaven, like this is the thing. Romans is not just a theology book about how individual people can figure out how to get to heaven. It's a bold and strong proclamation that the same way as any sinner could access the righteousness of Jesus and get to heaven is the same way that we would access one another in family. And the truth is, is he's not getting rid 
of the unevenness in our families. That's how he's going to talk about body parts and family members and strong and weak is because the vision of family is not everybody the same. The vision of family is unified diversity. It's the strong learning how to serve the weak. You know what's really hard? Everybody can say, yeah, you believe in Jesus or you baptize, you have faith. Yeah, everybody can say that. You know what's really hard? Believing it. And believing it inside of authority structures. You know what he's not getting rid of? Authority structures. He's causing some people to have more resources, more wisdom, more leadership, more availability, and some people to have less, and then saying, hey, can you trust that? Do you have faith for that? If you read it at any of the end of the epistles, it's like, honor your elders and pray for the people and don't you know, lord it over them and be shepherds of the sheep and don't be cowboys. You know why he does all that? Because it tests our faith. Not just in the faith in our brother, really it tests the sovereignty of God in that situation. Do you trust God enough to follow imperfect people as though you would follow Jesus? That's the gospel. And when you get into places of authority, do you think it's for your own self to privilege yourself and put yourself up on a pedestal? Would you lower yourself like Jesus, not like the Gentiles, and come up and serve under people that are weaker than you? Because the purpose of you being with weak people is not so you can lord it over them, but so you can serve them. Your blessing is to bless others. How about diversity? The diversity thing of black and white and red and black and all these other colors, that's the diversity. You know, the diversity test is a gospel test. We don't have Republican problems or rich problems or class problems. You know what we have? Gospel problems. Because if I don't know, if, if, if somehow I don't allow for that person because they don't look like me or sound like me or they don't have the personality that I like to not be a part of my small group, well, what that's challenged is not only my socioeconomic barriers that I put around myself, it challenges my belief about faith and what it does in the gospel. It challenges whether or not I believe that somebody needs to jump some other fence to get into my table, which means I must think they must need to jump some other, faith, some other fence to get to heaven. It's not a secondary issue. Unity is not a cause of the gospel. It's not an effect of the gospel. Unity is the gospel. There is no such thing as the gospel without unity, and there's no such thing as unity without the gospel. The gospel is what this world craves for, which is unity, and it can't be bought by political campaign slogans and bonding time and raising social awareness and great philosophical diplomatic discussion. It comes from dying to our righteousness to live in his, through faith and faith alone. And so so this is the test as as he works through the next couple of chapters, is uh, do you believe in, in faith? For access to heaven, but also, do you believe in faith as the only prerequisite for access, access into the table? Ultimately, this is the true test, is do you believe that because of what Jesus did on your behalf, that Jesus sees you and treats you and makes you like Jesus? But then, what's even harder than that in terms of my day-to-day life and how I spend my money and spend my time, is do I believe that about you too? Father looks at me, he looks through Jesus, and when I look at you, do I look through Jesus or some other lens? Do I treat you the way that Jesus treated me? Do I see you the way that Jesus sees me? Am I, are you being made in the image of Jesus through the power and authority of Jesus through my social engineering? That's really where the test happens. Whether faith, whether faith is enough, not just for heaven, but also for family. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.